0: Welcome back to the Big Amateurism Monologues. My name is Richard Ford, and I'm your host. Just a quick reminder that all of my podcast materials can be found at my podcast website, and that is bigamateurism.com. I can also be found on all the major third-party podcast directories, Apple, TuneIn, Stitcher, Spotify, all those places. And I have a blog that you can check out if you'd like to. The name of the blog is cagerredux.com. That's C-A-G-E-R-R-E-D-U-X. Com. All right, today is Monday, March 7th, 2022. And wow, what an amazing, crazy, almost surreal weekend for those of us on Tobacco Road here. And I think for a, a lot of the college sports basketball world, that, that game on Saturday, the entire experience on Saturday was really something to behold. And uh, I'm going to talk a little bit about that in this episode. And, and I guess I, I just want to say at the outset that. You know, in much of what I've been doing for the last four years with my research, my blogging, and then my podcasting, I have really been an analyst. And I've had the benefit of some detachment. And when I talk about the issues in college sports and the regulation of college sports and all these things that are happening in these really complicated moving parts, Congress, federal courts, state legislatures, the voluntary regulatory scene— I have the luxury of not really getting emotionally pulled in, but I really can't talk about Saturday uh, without talking about it at a personal level and, and my re- emotional response to it. And I'm going to talk a little bit about the game and, and then try to make a transition back into my role as the analyst and the, the clinical observer of college sports but I'm here at Ground Zero on Tobacco Road in Wake Forest North Carolina and so I have to start with the game itself and that's what really matters right now in the aftermath of uh, coach Case farewell to uh, Cameron Indoor Stadium and I really didn't talk about this in my episode before the game. But if you live in North Carolina and you have connections here, regardless of your affiliation, whatever school you're attached to, you're going to have people from the other schools in your life in one way or another. And there are tar heels everywhere in my life. They're just hanging from the rafters. And after that game on Saturday, they multiplied exponentially. I was hearing from people. I hadn't heard from in forever, but that's one of the beauties of the rivalry. It, it was so funny to me. So on game day, as the the momentum was building up towards the, the game and I was on campus for a good part of the day and Former teammates were coming in and it was a crazy scene and uh, there were news stories coming out and somebody, I don't know who it was, it may have been somebody from Duke who posted a list of all the former players that were coming back and then that got picked up by all the big media outlets and it was all over the internet. And I started getting texts and phone calls from Duke people who I hadn't heard from in decades. That was a lot of fun. They all just wanted to acknowledge that they had seen my name somewhere and and, uh, wished the team well. So that was all. Great stuff. I didn't hear much from the Tar Heel fans before the game, but boy, yes, after the game, the, the phone was lighting up for a different reason, and it was a different color blue, but I've got a lot of Tar Heels in my life. In fact, I met my wife at Duke, and we met, gosh, in, I guess in 1981. And, and then we got married in 1988, but she went to med school at UNC and and then our son just last year graduated from medical school at UNC. And now he is a uh, first year resident in ophthalmology there. And while he was in medical school, he met a beautiful, amazing Tar Heel who he married last May and, and then my oldest sister, she's a, a Tar Heel, she grew up a Duke fan. But she became a Tar Heel, and she married a guy from Boone who's a a lifelong coach and and athletics director at the high school level. And their two incredible sons both played football for UNC. So it's everywhere. And and there are limits. There are things we just don't talk about. And I have to say that the -the dyed-in-the-wool Tar Heels, my daughter-in-law and my sister, were very gracious for the most part. (laughs) pretty gracious. My daughter-in-law was sending me little blurbs during the game where I I got some FaceTime and she'd do a screenshot. It was a lot of fun, really. But let's face it, Carolina, they outplayed this Duke team. They came in and uh, exhibited a lot of those characteristics that I talked about in the last episode that Coach K has been preaching for over four decades now. They came in ready. They came in balanced. They came in purposeful. And that was really, I think, the difference in the teams on Saturday. And I'll talk a little bit about what I think the headspace could have been for this Duke team. And boy, it was a really challenging dynamic for them. I'm not making any excuses because this Carolina team was firing on all cylinders. Everybody played well. And of all those qualities that I listed, it was their sense of purpose, I think, that really stood out. And your perspective on a basketball game is a function of how you're taking it in. If you watch it on TV, you get one perspective. If you're in a stadium, even one as small as Cameron, if you're in the upper level, you have a different relationship, but when you're behind the bench and you get to see the game at ground level and you are really a part of the things that are only visible to, to the participants and, and the fans that are right there on the floor, you, you come away with a much better sense of the rhythm of the game, of the emotion of the game, of the headspace of the teams and the individual players. And one of the things that I saw in this Carolina team was that they were on task the entire game. And even In the first half, when Duke made its run, they went up by seven, maybe nine points. UNC didn't change that focus. They didn't change their sense of purpose. And you could see it in their eyes. You could just see it. I'm sitting in the stands with some of the best college basketball players in college basketball history and and some great nba players and i'm looking down the road and i calculated about 200 years two centuries of high level basketball experience and i'm drinking it all in and i want to know what these guys think and i'm not sure there was a consensual reality about the duke team and how they played but i think there was consensus that uh unc just played a phenomenal game and they came in and did everything that you need to do to win on the road, and let's put aside all of the hoopla around the game and, and Coach K's last game and Cameron. It's still, the Duke Carolina game—it's the last game of the regular season. They're going to be heading into the ACC tournament, where they could very well meet again. And Carolina came to win, and they did. And I want to talk a little bit about the context of that win for UNC. This was one of the biggest wins in the history of the program, according to the fan base and everything that I saw in the media and all the love I was getting from my Tar Heel family after the game. <laughs> and I was reflecting back to the last episode and my discussion of the the three games that we played against UNC in that 83-84 season. The, the, the script really was flipped back then and Coach K was coming in and he had a very young team and he was a young coach. UNC was the gold standard. Dean Smith was the gold standard. Our aspirations were to Not just be able to compete with north carolina and to beat them but to aspire to this consistency that that program had and it was really interesting to me i mean the circumstances aren't exactly the the direct opposite of that now but you've got a new coach at unc hubert davis phenomenal coach and a really great guy according to people who know him very well and he had his team ready he really had these guys ready to go but he hasn't made his mark yet i mean this is an important moment for him personally. But right now, the gold standard is Duke basketball and Mike Krzyzewski. The the beauty of that, if you you love ACC basketball, if you love Tobacco Road basketball, there's beauty in that. And and looking at how the script existed in 1983-84, and now the script that exists in 2022... This Carolina basketball team has the opportunity to create its own identity. Coach Davis can create his own identity, just like Coach K did. And that's obviously not an accurate apples-to-apples comparison because you had enormous success under Roy Williams. But look, coaching changes are tough for everybody. And I mentioned that in the last episode. And that's the case for for UNC, regardless of who comes in to replace a, a legendary coach like Coach Williams. So... That's just the beauty of college sports and college basketball and Tobacco Road basketball and ACC basketball, but more particularly the beauty of the rivalry between the University of North Carolina and Duke University. And I think now after this historic game, both coaches have uh, different but very compelling challenges. Obviously for UNC and Coach Davis, they've got a transition from one of the most powerful experiences in the history of the program to getting back to business, and, and that's not easy. The challenge for the coaches and the teams and the players in this phase of the season is to stay focused because things start moving so fast. And we've got the ACC tournament starting tomorrow. UNC and Duke both have buys. They're in opposite brackets. And they're looking at their quarterfinal game. That's the next task in front of them. They've got to be ready for that. And Carolina needs to come in with the same sense of purpose and readiness into that tournament that it did when it came to Cameron Indoor Stadium on Saturday. And that's not always an easy transition. But that's going to be interesting. And, of course, there's the the possibility, as I mentioned earlier, that uh, these two teams could meet in the ACC Championship. So I want to talk a little bit about Coach K's response to that game. And admittedly, the environment in Cameron right after the game was awkward. It was strange. I think people hadn't really envisioned what that would look like, what Cameron would look like if Duke lost. And all of a sudden, that reality was sitting right at center court. So the team left and Coach K had some time with them in the locker room. And then they were setting up for an award ceremony. And there was some the recognition of Coach K's career and people made speeches and all, and all that kind of stuff. And Coach K's uh, wife, Mickey, and his his three daughters were sitting there and Coach K walked in and his players walked in. And uh, as I'm watching the players and they were dejected, I, I think the enormity of the moment, I think, came into full reality for them on the backside of that game. And it was just such a strange environment. And when the team went over to the bench, my heart went out to him. And I I have no idea what what coach said to them in the locker room. But what I heard when when Coach K came back in and before he sat down for the ceremony, he made some very brief comments. And the crowd was trying to get uh, jazzed back up. And Coach K kind of nipped that and the bud. And Coach K took a microphone and he's looking at the side of Cameron opposite where the players were sitting. The players went over and sat on the visitor's bench. So Coach K's back was to them. And Coach K says, I'm sorry, today was unacceptable. Most of the season has been very acceptable and this season isn't over. And even though He had the microphone and he was making eye contact with the the fans and Cameron. He was talking to his players. That message was for his players. And what he was doing in that moment was coaching. He was doing his job and it was brilliant. Some of my baby blue friends took umbrage to that and thought that that was an inappropriate comment and I was just laughing. Too. I, I engaged one of them and said, look, you missed the point there. What you just saw was Coach K at his best and he's not done it. And that's all Coach K said when he came back out of the locker room. Then he went over and sat down next to his wife and his family and they had the awards presentation and, and all that was very nice. And then Coach K took the microphone back and he spoke from the heart and he spoke eloquently about his family and about his connection to Duke. But what I thought was really so special was the way that he was talking to these players and only that team knows what this journey has been like for them. This family, I talked about family in the last episode and Coach K talked about his real family in his post-game comments, but for his basketball family this year, this unique family they have their own journey their own story and it is unlike anything that any team that's played for coach k has ever experienced these are unique circumstances and i think it's important to acknowledge that it's funny in the discussions we had after the game we were talking about some of the things that the the team needs to be attentive to going forward and there was some there was some old school toughness there <laughs> there were some guys from back in the day who looked at it through the lens of, of toughness and that and that's important but i think you have to look honestly and realistically at the unique circumstance that this team faced on Saturday. And again, it's not an excuse. And that's and certainly in no way an attempt to minimize the way that Carolina played because they were just phenomenal. But the truth of the matter is that this was a, an unprecedented uh, game and an unprecedented circumstance. And these kids were right in the middle of it. As I made my way to campus on Saturday and then kind of got sucked into the to the maelstrom and then saw really how challenging it has been for the, the basketball program and the staff to try to manage this event through the lens of what the external interests want from this event. And that goes from the university administration to the alumni base and then out into all of the corporate interests that surround events like this and big-time college sports, they all had their expectations for this game and this event. It was commercialized. There's no question about that. But from the inside, it was really an interesting peak into how difficult it is to try to manage all of those competing interests. And boy, Coach K's daughter, Debbie, was in large part responsible for for staging this and, and, and trying to get the logistics worked out. And Coach K's assistant, Jerry Brown, who's been with him forever, and Laura Ann Howard, who's been with him forever. They were incredible. And it was a tough weekend for them emotionally. And they were trying to get everybody where they needed to be. This was not a normal game. And uh, players like routines. They like to be in their groove so they can focus on getting mentally prepared for the game, the r- routine here was just turned upside down and inside out for everybody, including Carolina. We made this tunnel for Coach K when he came out. They had us in a, in a room and we were in a staging area and then they're waiting for the right time for us to get out on the court. We had the two lines and again, it was this was like a military operation logistically and they were trying to get us all set up and you know that interfered with Carolina's pregame routine. I mean, we're, we're on their end of the court. So actually, we took the whole court and it was just a a strange environment, I think. If you're looking at it through the lens of the players who were used to having their routine very well set, and that gives them the opportunity to focus on what they need to be focused on, and that is game preparation. And from a purely selfish standpoint, I got to experience a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity to be with all of Coach K's former players and to stand side by side with them and across from them as Coach K took the floor in Cameron for the very last time. And I was about halfway down the player tunnel and I was looking back and I got to see Coach K's face as he was walking in and then as he's fist bumping player after player down the line from different eras, and he was just drinking it all in. It it looked like he was really in the moment, and his face was full of joy. It was just a beautiful experience to have the opportunity to be part of that and to be in the middle of it, and now to have a memory of it. But I really want to get back to Coach K's comments after the game. So after the ceremony, Coach K took the microphone, and he was talking about all the things that were important to him. And he focused on his family. And then he brought that initial comment he made when he came out before the ceremony right back to where it needed to land. And he said what was obvious, I think, to everybody uh, who watched that basketball game, and that was that the Duke team didn't play well. And he looked over at us then. So he turns from his team and he looks over at us and he points at us and says, and there were times when you didn't Either. In doing that, he was connecting the collective experience of all the former players with what this team was feeling in the moment. And there is uh, nothing that you can say, nothing that you can do to. Ease the pain and the frustration of a team that is in the aftermath, the immediate aftermath of a loss, particularly a loss against your rival, and and, and even more particularly, a loss against your rival under historic circumstances. And then, Coach K really brought it home for his team, he said, hopefully today for our program, this program right now, it's a great learning experience. And he turns to his team and says, we need to fight for Duke. We need to fight for the brotherhood. We need to fight with all of our might for the remainder of the season. Then I'll be ready to get the hell out of here. And then he said straight up to his team, I love you guys. And he says, I love what we're going to do from learning what happened today as we move forward. And that message... Was pitch perfect for the circumstances that existed after that game on Saturday, and we'll, we'll see. One of the one of the beauties of of the game and the beauties of the rivalry is we'll see how these teams respond, and we'll know pretty quickly here in the next few days. And on Thursday, both Duke and UNC will play in the quarterfinals and in, in opposite brackets. We'll just go to the next phase of the season, and I'm probably not going to be talking a lot about the kind of game-by-game stuff and come back to this other world of basketball and college sports through the lens of a a fan and a consumer of college sports. I'm going to go back into character as an analyst of all of these things that are happening behind the scenes that are going to influence the future of college sports. And I want to do a couple things to make that transition. I feel like I'm having to go through some emotional reprogramming here because I just went so deep into this other world on Saturday and I'm having to pull myself out of it. But there are a a couple of thoughts I had over the weekend and, and in particular on Saturday when I saw this spectacle play out. And one is just how easy it is to grant the world access to an experience like that and how powerful it it can be for the consumers of big-time college sports, and then also how powerful it can be for the institutional stakeholder beneficiaries. In this case, both Duke University and also the University of North Carolina, and I would say up the chain of uh, governance structures through the conference structure into the Power Five and into the NCAA. This was an extraordinary event that all of the in-system stakeholder beneficiaries benefited from enormously, both at the financial level level and also at the marketing and branding level. And that's the name of the game in higher education in the United States of America. And this is not a new thing. And I want to reflect back to my second episode of this podcast on what it is that institutions get from being in the big-time college sports sweepstakes. And I, I reflected back to the work of the Carnegie Foundation and a report that the foundation did in 1929, the Carnegie Report on American College Athletics. It was really prescient in terms of the relationship between big-time college sports, and really it was football. The focus of that report was on college football, and it was exploding in the early 20th century. And the Carnegie Foundation and and the authors of this report, Henry Pritchett, who was the head of the foundation, and he wrote a, a preface to that report, And then Howard Savage, who actually conducted the field study that led to the report, and that was, I think, two or three years, and he visited schools all over the United States, a few in Canada, to look at this phenomenon of big-time football and its relationship to American universities and higher education more broadly. And in that preface, Pritchett offered some comments and, and some observations that were really spot on and have withstood the test of time. And I think one of the most important observations that Pritchett made goes to what it is that universities crave, what do they want, and how do they go about getting it. And Pritchett really looks at how the university achieves its goals through the lens of publicity and the sports media, which is unique to the United States, and particularly as it relates to college sports and higher education more broadly, because there's no other model anywhere else in the world like our model of intercollegiate athletics. And so I just want to read a little bit of what Pritchett has to say in his preface. He says, it goes without saying that 50,000 people, Then he parens, not an unusual attendance, could not be gathered to witness a football game through the mere pull of college loyalty or interest in the sport. The bulk of the spectators do not understand the game. They are drawn to this spectacle through widespread and continuous publicity. The paper, Being Human, supplies the kind of news the advertisers like. It prints much for those of wider interest, but it follows the desires of its great advertising constituency all the time. This has led to a form of personal news telling unknown in any other country. In no other nation of the world will a college boy find his photograph in the Metropolitan Paper because he plays on a college team. All of this is part of the newspaper effort to reach the advertiser. The situation is regrettable alike for journalism and for the public good, but it exists. And I want to stop right there. I'm going to get to this next quote here, which is really the money quote. But I want to stop right there because you have to remember that Pritchett's viewing this through the lens of the uh, values of higher education and the changing American value system as it existed in the early 20th century. And he's saying this uniquely American reliance on values driven by money. And that's what he's talking about here when all this runs through the lens of advertisers and it sells that that poses a threat to higher education so he's speaking about this in terms of higher education at at a uh, values level and what's interesting about that is that nobody's really even speaking that language anymore miles brand in that 2001 speech to the National Press Club that I've talked so much about. Before he became the NCAA president, after he had fired Bob Knight, he's talking about this dissonance between the values of higher education and its relationship to big-time college sports. He said that the fundamental purpose of the American university is to acquire and protect and disseminate knowledge. And if you accept that, and I believe that's what Henry Pritchett assumed to be the case because that was so well understood then, it's not so clear anymore. And in the grand quest for prestige and power, the connection between mission and money, I think, is increasingly obscure. But I I think if you're looking honestly at higher education in the 21st century, you're looking at a, a model that is Based primarily on branding and marketing and acquiring wealth for wealth's sake. And, and that is a measure of the value of your degree and your pedigree and the value of your product as a market participant in the big business of higher education. And these mission statements are nothing more than wallpaper. They're advertisements. They're slogans. You will hear in-system stakeholder beneficiaries talk about, well, our mission, it's our mission. Well, what the hell is the mission? And where does your exploitation of revenue-producing sports fit into your mission? There was a time when the academic critics of big-time college sports, and this is post-Carnegie Report, but into the 1970s, 80s, 90s, and then towards the end of the 1990s, I think there was a critical mass of that kind of criticism. But the notion is that there's something wrong here. We have lost our way. And that was really the theme of the Knight Commission in the early 90s with that first report. We're not having that discussion any, anymore. The, the discussion is no longer about whether big-time college sports is consistent with the values of higher education. The discussion now is how we can protect the business model, and that runs through these absurd, hypocritical, dishonest concerns for the integrity of college sports. And that was the, the way those issues were framed in the NCAA Power Five campaign in the Senate, beginning in 2019, it wasn't the integrity of higher education, it was the integrity of college sports, because we have basically given up on the debate on whether the existence of big-time college sports is consistent with the values of higher education. And the game now in higher education is to see who is swinging the biggest endowment in the locker room. And the the value of your endowment is a measure of the quality and prestige of your institution. And that is acquiring wealth for wealth's sake. And those perceptions are driven by things like the U.S., News and World Report rankings. And again, those that, that started in 1983. I talked about that in the context of Duke University's rise and its relationship to Duke basketball and the rise of Duke basketball in the early 80s under Coach K. But you have that kind of influence that appeals to American values, for better or worse. Some would say it appeals to our best instincts. Some would say it appeals to our worst instincts. But whether that's right or wrong, the entire industry of higher education has succumbed to that measuring stick. And again, just as with amateur athletics and this amateur professional dilemma, they play the same hypocrisy when it comes to how they gauge the value of their brand. And they want to say it has nothing to do with the U.S. News and World Report rankings. And these college presidents and the governing boards and administrators will look you dead in the eye and say that these rankings mean nothing to them and they don't pay attention. To them. And that is just another grand lie. But I want to talk about how Pritchett summarizes this issue of the use of big-time college sports to achieve institutional interests. And he says, Into this game of publicity, the university of the present day enters eagerly. It desires for itself the publicity that the newspapers can supply. It wants students. It wants popularity. But above all, it wants money, and always more money. The athlete is the most available publicity material the college has. A great scientific discovery will make good press material for a few days, but nothing to compare to that of the performance of a first-class athlete. Thousands are interested in the athlete all the time, while the scientist is at best only a passing show. And I had some thoughts along those lines this weekend. And it was really interesting. I, I got sucked right in to all the trappings of the game of publicity and all the hoopla surrounding this event. And it had great personal meaning to me because I have a relationship to the product, the basketball product that's different than most stakeholders. And I, I see things differently than a lot of people because of my views on the business of big time college sports and its relationship to higher education. But I mentioned in that last episode that I grew up in Durham and I spent a lot of time on campus and I still have in my mind's eye the footprint, the physical footprint of the campus from all, you know all of its boundaries from East Campus all the way through Central Campus and to the outer edges of West Campus and that area around the hospital, between the hospital and the chapel, used to be occupied by a small handful of buildings. And the science and engineering footprint was very, very small. And I think one of the things that the university wanted to do and consciously did through this retrenchment effort beginning in the 1970s was to really prioritize the STEM disciplines. And they were working hard to make that happen, but that doesn't happen overnight. And I don't get to that part of campus much at all anymore. In fact, I haven't really done a a full walkthrough of the whole campus as it exists in in 2022. If I go there for a purpose, I go and get in and get out. And when I go to do games occasionally, I'll park somewhere over by the athletic facilities and I'm familiar with that. But for this game, because I was worried about what the scene was going to be and whether I might get stuck in gridlock closer to, to campus and closer to Cameron, I borrowed my wife's parking pass. She's a physician in, at Duke. And I parked in the eye center a lot and it was empty. They weren't open for the weekend. And that's a, a good walk. But to get From that part of campus, from that part of the hospital infrastructure over to main campus, it takes you right through what is, to me, a new campus, a science and engineering campus. And there was really only one building there, an old building called the Hudson Building. And you'd walk by it and it seemed an outlier. And that was the engineering building, I think. And then there were a couple of science buildings up on on the top of the hill near the chapel. But there really wasn't much else there. And now there is a sprawling campus of buildings and classrooms and research facilities, and it's really impressive. And as I'm walking through this campus, I'm looking around and thinking, my gosh, this is just amazing. And I actually got lost more than once trying to cut through, and I finally found my way onto main campus. But, you know, What I was thinking as I was walking through, and then I I walked back through, and I I did that with a former teammate, a guy named Todd Anderson. We played together. He was a year behind me, and he played in Europe for a good number of years, and and he came back to the States. He's in Las Vegas now with his family, but he hadn't really been back to campus, and he was like, my God, I don't even recognize this place. And That's a common reaction for people who who haven't been on campus for a long, long time. And I was trying to explain to him my take on Duke's trajectory and its relationship to Duke basketball and a lot of the things I talked about in that episode before the game on Saturday. And then I gave Todd a ride back to his hotel and we'd spent a good amount of time just talking about this new Duke University and the power of Duke basketball. And even though we were both part of it in different ways, we really haven't been connected to it at the day-to-day kind of uh, experiential level and the the life of Duke basketball and its place within the institution. And when you are in it, and we were in it for a day on Saturday, it's breathtaking the enormity of it, the presence of it, the power of it, the connection between that product and the university writ large and its grand aspirations. And what Duke has become is a, in many ways, a direct product of their conscious attempt to change their profile, to become a truly elite institution, not just in the United States now, but in in the world. And the Duke basketball product is exactly what Henry Pritchett was describing in 1929, and that the best pathway for publicity wasn't the scientist who was going to map the human genome. When Miles Brand talked about that in that 2001 speech to the National Press Club, and the difference in attention for the press conferences he held when he fired Bobby Knight and it was a feeding frenzy versus a few months later when he's announcing the largest gift ever to Indiana University to map the human genome and he was speaking to an empty room. So the power of the basketball product as a marketing and branding tool, it's almost impossible to calculate. And I touched on this in the last episode, but there are a lot of people in institutional settings, throughout the, the big-time higher education marketplace, and say, for, for example, the universities that are in the Association of American Universities, they resent the reliance on the publicity that comes from big-time football and being big-time men's basketball, and they don't think those products really have any business being part of the university community, but they don't have any trouble accepting the benefit that comes with it and having all the money that flows in and having all these important people and these extraordinarily wealthy, powerful people going to basketball games and to football games and then hobnobbing with members of the university community. And uh, as Todd and I were walking back from Cameron. And we're talking about all this stuff. And he had, I think, intuitively had some of the same themes come to mind. But as we're talking, I'm bookmarking some things that we're talking about. And one of the things that I thought about on my ride home, it's about a 45-minute ride home from Durham to where I live in Wake Forest. I was thinking, let's just change the facts a little bit. And let's assume that some brilliant professor, and Duke is loaded with brilliant minds, and they're doing wonderful things in the world. But the things that they're doing don't get the publicity that Duke basketball gets. They don't have the same impact at the branding level that Duke basketball has provided. Is that a good thing? Who knows? Is it unfortunate that the the amazing work that's done every day at Duke University by these brilliant minds goes largely unnoticed? Yes, that's a problem. That's a big problem. But that's a cultural problem. It's a societal problem. It's not the fault of Coach K or these athletes. Duke has decided to be in this game, and they could get out of it tomorrow. And in that second episode, I talked about the University of Chicago. You know, they were uh, once a member of the Big Ten. A lot of people don't know that. And one of the most famous football coaches in, in all of college football, Amos Alonzo Stagg, was their head coach. And then in the 1930s and 40s, their university president uh, looked at big-time college football and I think saw it through a similar lens as the Carnegie Foundation did and Henry Pritchett did and Abraham Flexner and Howard Savage. And he said, these two things, they just don't align and we're not going to be in this business. So they got out of the business of big time college football and they left the Big Ten. And I would say to the critics of the current reliance on the branding and marketing opportunities of big time football and big time men's basketball, look, if you find the presence of those products so unpalatable and so inconsistent with your conceptualization of the ideal environment in higher education then get the hell out get the hell out and stop bitching about it you know but they're not going to and the reason is that they are in up to their eyeballs in the very publicity game that henry pritchett was describing in 1929 but i had this thought as i was driving home and i'm like okay let's change the facts a little bit what if What if some of those brilliant minds in science that are toiling away in those buildings that I walked by on my way to the spectacle that existed in Cameron Indoor Stadium, what if they were working on some kind of scientific breakthrough and it was going to be a profound fundamental change? Whatever it is, use your imagination. And their work received the same fawning media attention that big-time college sports do. And you had an an apparatus built in external to the university that did nothing but pump out publicity, exactly what Henry Pritchett was talking about in this symbiotic relationship between the athletic product, and the media that covers it. And it is a cozy, cozy relationship. And these external interests, the ESPNs of the world, they're not really offering uh, disinterested, neutral observations and quote-unquote coverage of college sports. They are marketing college sports because they are in the college sports marketplace. And I've talked some about that. I'm going to talk about that a lot more because that's an interesting topic. And historian John Thielen, he writes about higher education. He's also written about College Sports and Higher Education. And in that 1994 book, The Games Colleges Play, he talks about that dynamic, the sensationalized coverage of college sports and, and college coaches and college athletes and big time programs and how overblown it is. But there's market value in that. And it's an illusion. The, the industry is, is creating an illusion that is so seductive that we just buy in. We buy the ticket. We take the ride. And that's exactly what I did this weekend. And I loved every second of it, except for the final outcome of the game. But when you submit... You, you just give in and just go on the ride, and you don't have to do anything. You, there's somebody pulling you along, and with this uh, sensationalized sports media, they're telling you what to think. After the experience that you've had, they're telling you what you actually experienced and why you experienced what you ex- experienced, and you don't have to do anything. You don't have to think. You just have to follow the script. You have to just stay on the ride and keep the ticket in your hand. That's all you have to do. And that's very powerful. And Thielen uses as an example of that absurdity in the context of higher education, the different ways that football player Red Grange was treated when he died and how he was eulogized. Compared to another famous University of Illinois graduate, John Bardeen, who received two Nobel Prizes in the 20th century. He, he invented the transistor, just a brilliant scientist. And Bardeen's death was in a different section of the newspaper. It wasn't on the front page like Grange's was, and it was very modest. And why? Why is that? And why are we so fascinated with the exploits of these athletes? And I think that ties into some of our misplaced values as a culture, but that's the way it is. That's the way the game is being played right now. John Bardeen wasn't on the front page, and Red Grange wasn't uh, relegated to the Metro section. And and the universities have exploited that, I think, character flaw in American culture. But if you play it along with my hypothetical, my fantasy, and we assume that brilliant scientist at Duke who's working on a revolutionary breakthrough, scientific breakthrough, if that person gets the same attention as Coach K does. What does the university pay that scientist for the publicity that scientist generates? If you had a scientific media community that was built around turning the scientist into demigods, the way that the sports media does with college coaches, then I think you would see the university valuing that individual scientist in a way that's as least as lucrative and important to institutional interests as Coach K is to Duke University. So are those misplaced values? I think, yeah, I think they are misplaced values. But those are the values the university has accepted, adopted, and exploited. And you can't have it both ways when you're in decision-making chairs at the university level. And on the one hand, recognize the value of what a Coach K and a Duke basketball product brings to your university and your your branding potential. And then on the other hand, devalue the athletes who actually provide the value in that product because in your heart of hearts, you believe they have no business being there. And that's a dynamic that exists at prestigious universities all over the country. And that's one of the reasons that I have been so committed to talking about athletes rights in a different way and there's all this discussion now about athletes as employees that's an interesting discussion and I've talked to some you know people who are on the front edge of that and have some sense of what the thinking is and, and some of the you know, the important moving parts and who's ultimately going to be deciding whether that comes to be but in in looking at that single issue it's not enough just to say, oh, these athletes should have employee status. And, and by these, I'm talking about the really high value athletes in football, men's basketball that provide the, all of the value in the big time college sports marketplace and fund every aspect of it, specifically including and importantly, including all the downstream beneficiaries of that revenue in system and the administrators and the coaches and the non-revenue, quote unquote, Olympic athletes. And I've talked about about the racial component of that transfer. It is a massive regressive transfer of wealth from largely African-American laborers to largely white beneficiaries. But in looking at the value of these elite athletes to their universities at the university level, at the institutional level, and through the lens of institutional values And interests, the true value of these athletes has been grossly understated. And when we're talking about a a, a pay scale, and that's one of the things that comes up what should these athletes truly be paid? What are they truly worth to the institution? And nobody in this discussion is talking about the true value of these elite athletes. But how do you put a value on that? How do you put a value on? what Coach K has done at the branding level for the university. I don't know if you can quantify it, and I'm not sure that there's an analog in the corporate world or in professional sports. Because while higher education has become a big time industry, The fact of the matter is that higher education holds a very special place culturally and socially. And I don't think you're comparing apples to apples if you're comparing Stanford or Duke or Berkeley or Harvard or Yale or Princeton or pick your school to Microsoft, Apple, and Walmart. They hold different space in American culture. And the value, the importance of higher education to America. So in my mind, the discussion over whether athletes should be employees and be recognized as statutory employees under federal law isn't really whether they should be employees. They are employees by any standard. They are employees and pretending that they're not is ridiculous on its face. So, in my judgment, merely acknowledging the true relationship between these athletes and and their universities shouldn't be that big a deal. The more important question is, how do we value them? And what's our yardstick and i talked about this in that episode on bob bowlsby at the aspen institute he can just go in and out of his talking points that have really an uh, unchallengeable normative value and that's all he has to do the burden on people trying to deconstruct those lies is higher than the burden on the people who are putting out those lies and on my list of things to do and i've talked about it some but i think it's important to get into it a little bit deeper And through the lens of the very academicians who uh, bemoan the influence that big time college sports have, but to to look at how they talk about higher education independent of college athletics. And I started with a book uh, by Clark Kerr called The Uses of the University. And he's the former president of UC Berkeley. And I think this book was first published in 1963. And then he did updates. And I think the last update was in 2001. And the reason I selected this book is because this book is uh, cited by academicians commenting on big-time college sports. And in most of those commentaries, they take a dim view of the relationship between big-time college sports and the values of higher education, very similar to what the Carnegie Report was saying in 1929. And so you have writers like Murray Sperber is a good example. Uh, He is from Indiana University. He was a thorn in Bobby Knight's side. And uh, he wrote a couple of books, I think one in the late 90s, one in the early 2000s, and one's titled Beer and Circus. And I'm going to talk about that because when you read Sperber's book, and he makes some great observations, but the criticisms that he levies against the relationship between big-time college sports and higher education exists independent of big-time college sports. And it's really interesting. If you just took out any reference to college sports, Sperber's book would be a really nice critique of higher education writ large in the United States in the early 2000s. But Sperber does what so many academicians do when they're talking about the relationship between big time college sports and higher education. and they attribute all the ills in higher education to big-time college sports, but don't acknowledge the true benefits. That narrative is so deeply ensconced into the way that in-system stakeholder beneficiaries have talked about big-time college sports that it is as powerful as many of the NCAA's false narratives and public lies that they have been propagandizing and reinforcing into the American consciousness really since the 1950s. And Walter Byers, and I guess you could even make argument that that goes back to the late 19th century and early 20th century. And that's reflected in the Carnegie Report, 1929. So you have these powerful narratives that come from different constituencies that kind of land in the same place. And in my judgment, they all go to delegitimize the true value of the athletes to the institutional interests and to higher education interests more broadly. But again, in order to To dispel some of these narratives, it's not enough to just say, oh, gosh, these people are exploiting these kids. It's important to understand why. How do these people see the world? Why do they think the way they think? And is the way that they've articulated their values consistent with the actual uh, business model that they have created, that they have created? These athletes didn't create this business model. Coach K didn't create this business model. The universities created this business model, and they are benefiting enormously from it. Wow. I feel like I'm now right back in the saddle. You know, I, <laughs> I got pulled out this weekend. I had such a great experience at the personal level. And, and again, I, I love college sports and I have enormous respect for the producers, the athletes, and the coaches are in a really interesting spot. And I've had that conversation with a lot of former athletes. And how do you reconcile the money, that these guys are making and aren't they just as guilty as the athletics directors and the conference commissioners and all of the barnacles that are attached to the product and these big broadcast media outlets and the entire entertainment sports industrial complex to a certain extent but they also i think are in a different position because their role in the overall marketplace is different and i've always believed that their hearts in the right place when it comes to their athletes and what they want for the athletes but they have golden handcuffs. And I think the time for coaches to have stood up uh, together and to advocate for the economic interest of these athletes has come and gone. That ship has sailed and now they're in so deep they simply can't speak, and I'm going to talk about that as well. But I, I want to get back on task looking at the future of college sports and trying to figure out who the hell's in charge, and we're going to be looking at this transformation committee. And I had a whole list of kind of these big picture issues that I wanted to talk about through the lens of this transformation committee's work, and uh, I'm going to I'm going to get back to that here. And, and then also, as I research more and, and talk to people who are in the space on this athlete's employees' issues, I want to start to talk about that a little more thoughtfully. But as I transition back into my role as analyst, I I can't help but just point out one thing that I saw on the NCAA website. So I bookmark stuff all the time. The NCAA propaganda machine never sleeps, and the NCAA is still trying to prove that it's relevant. But let's see, when was this? This was on March 4th, so last Friday, the day before the Duke Carolina game. And here is the headline from the NCAA website. Former Clark Atlanta men's basketball head coach provided impermissible benefits. So, what did this guy do? Here, let's see. A former Clark Atlanta men's basketball head coach provided more than $1,000 in impermissible benefits to the fathers of two men's basketball student-athletes, according to a decision released by the Division II Committee on Infractions. As a result of the head coach's direct involvement in the violations, he failed to promote an atmosphere for compliance and violated head coach responsibility rules. We cannot have that. We cannot have that. So what did this guy do according to the decision? The enforcement staff, school, and head coach agreed that the head coach provided impermissible benefits when he wrote checks to the fathers of two student-athletes. In both cases, the funds were withdrawn from a nonprofit organization founded and directed by the former head coach. The check provided to one student-athlete's father amounted to $591 and was a reimbursement of the student-athlete's textbooks for one semester, although his partial scholarship did not cover books. If you are struggling for words to describe the absurdity of that sentence, then you're right where I am. And then they say, the check provided to the second student-athlete's father, amounting to $475, was a reimbursement for that student-athlete's enrollment fees. And then they talk about the head coach had what appeared to be a good faith mistaken belief that he could front that money and then get reimbursed. So here's what the NCAA did to this coach for buying textbooks for one of his kids whose scholarship didn't cover it. And then enrollment fees. This is chump change. And it goes to a purpose that directly relates to the NCAA's self-described nonprofit purpose, and that is education. So here's what the NCAA does with that. The committee prescribed the following penalties and corrective measures. One year of probation for the school, a $3,500 fine a one-year show cause order for the former head coach. That's the Scarlet C for cheater. This coach has to wear that on his forehead for a year. And then they vacate all the records in which these student athletes competed while ineligible. The NCAA is pulling the same crap after the beating that they took in 2021, after this constitutional makeover. And this is their evidence That they are on the job doing the righteous work on behalf of the student athletes. This is the new NCAA, ladies and gentlemen. This is the NCAA that the Constitution Committee promised you. Our university presidents picking up the phone and calling the NCAA and demanding an explanation for the absurdity of this infractions and enforcement case. Are they doing that? No. They're not doing that because they are too deeply invested in preserving the corrupt status quo as it relates to the NCAA. They've been steamrolled by the Power Five. Division II got their payoff. This is a Division II case. And now they're just going along to get along because everything's okay in their status quo. And this is why nothing's going to change when the very people who created this kind of insanity are still in charge of the voluntary governance of college sports. All right. So with that, I'm going to close this thing out. I want to thank you so much for joining. It's always an honor and a privilege to have you. And I hope to have you back for the next episode of the Big Amateurism Monologues. Take care.